Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper, Bridgerola, Eno Saris here with you on this Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday, July 13th. On this episode, we will discuss the theatrics of Pete Alonzo during Monday night's home run derby. We have comments from Commissioner Rob Manfred in one of his twice annual meetings with the media in a typical year. Two times is what he said. He made good on that earlier in the day on Tuesday. So we'll uh, dissect some of the comments made by the commissioner. And we will take a look ahead to the second half, kind of go division by division, talk about some expectations for the second half of the season. But we have to begin. It is critical that we begin with Pete Alonso because this guy looks like he's built for home run derbies after what we saw last night. There were plenty of impressive bats in the field, a lot of great matchups, a lot of fun. I'm jealous of both of you because you got to watch everything unfold live in person. And I think it's one of those events that's actually a lot easier to watch in person than it is on TV. The split screen thing, you know, it's okay, but it's actually kind of hard to track what happens with the ball after it was hit. So was this the best derby that you've been to live so far, Britt? Yes. Um, I haven't been to that many live, but I think it was, I think just having Otani as part of the group, um, as soon as he stepped up in that first round, I mean, Eno was there as well. Everybody in the stadium got on their feet, which, um, was remarkable. And it was just so silent as he struggled early on in the beginning of that first round before he really found his rhythm. Everybody was like collectively like, Oh, we're so excited. Oh no. And then it got even louder as he started to hit balls out, uh, started to really um, kind of figure out how the home run derby was going to work a little bit. But I honestly, maybe this is an unpopular opinion. I think if you're a fan, you'd have more fun going to a home run derby live than an all-star game live. I think it's set up to be really enjoyed as a fan. It's really easy to bring young kids to. Everyone understands the rules. It's very simple. The scoreboard's up there telling you what's going on. I think it's a lot of fun. Certainly the last one I went to, Bryce Harper won in D.C. That was a very cool moment as well. Uh, but I just don't think there's any topping watching Shohei Otani. And, you know, lost in this too is Trey Mancini, who was going through chemo a year ago today, uh, or a year ago from this, you know, is still going through stage three colon cancer. Almost won. He, oh, I mean, he got to the finals. So if you're MLB, you probably – would have scripted Otani to get a little bit further in. But honestly, I thought that the entertainment value was still through the roof just because of everybody who participated and the way the night unfolded. Yeah, I think the new rules uh, are a big part of this um, because, you know, it's not baseball. And there used to be kind of like, let's keep it like closer to baseball, I think. Uh, but then once they put the timer in and once they, you know, these things that aren't baseball, they, they kind of leaned into what they are. Um, I think it was really, I think it's taken off. I think the last few years have been really much a lot better with that timing aspect. Um, and uh, this particular one, uh, yeah, so much fun. And this, the uh, the way the crowd was kind of gasping, like, oh my God, what's, is he going to just have like five homers and bow out? Like this is what's going on here. And then to see him kind of come back and have that great minute of, of just a barrage of homers uh, was super fun to watch, and and the crowd was just oh Tony, oh Tony, and like you know, I just it was great. The one thing I would say is I I felt a little bit of a sort of um, 
that was the peak maybe in a way like the Soto because they had like the double overtime and like, you know, that was maybe the peak of it. And there was a kind of uh, the next round. I kind of was surprised when I look up, Oh, somebody's out, you know, like, like I barely even remember story bowing out, you know, uh, the final brought it back up again, brought the energy back up again. But I think the real peak of the energy was that Soto Otani matchup. Do we agree that there is a huge advantage to going second? I think we talked about it on Friday when we previewed the event. It just seems really clear that knowing how many you need changes a lot about your approach. And and the way Alonzo finished things off to win in the finals was incredible. I think it was seven straight home runs to end it. And I keep wondering, how many more would he have hit before that timer ran out if he kept going? Because you'll see on the screen if you're watching us on YouTube... Joey Chestnut, 76 hot dogs on the 4th of July. Pete Alonso, 74 dingers in the home run derby, but he had more time left. I think Pete Alonso actually tops that 76 from Joey Chestnut if he gets to play out the rest of the clock because he was locked in when he won that title. Yeah. What I like the most about Pete Alonso is he's really happy to be there. (laughs) That's not always the case. And he gets so excited. I mean, during media availability, earlier in the day yesterday, he was talking a lot about approach. And he's like, I don't, people talk about messing up swings. He doesn't buy into any of that. The cleats he wore yesterday, he's auctioning off for charity. Um, during one of his rounds, maybe it was the finals. I'm not, I can't really remember. There was a bunch of time left on the clock. He steps outside the batter's box and lifts his hands to get the crowd up before <laughs> his own hype squad as well. And I just think that he should be in it every year. Not only is he making more money to win the home run derby than he's making to play baseball for the Mets, which is a crazy indictment of the arbitration system, uh, but he's just entertaining and enjoys every second. And I think we need more of that, right? Like we need more of guys who want to be in the home run derby. Uh, I think Pete Alonso is just the perfect guy to do it. Um, have him in there every year. He comes into the press conference telling reporters, wait a second, I didn't win, I repeated. You know, like he's speaking. And, you know, he's got the whole ego, and I love it. I think that's what this sport needs. So uh, to me, Pete Alonso is now the, the standard for the home run dirt. <laughs> There's this kind of complicated but iconic moment for Pete Alonso where um, this one fan had like uh, hurt themselves trying to make a catch, and then one of the kids on the field uh, like sprained his ankle or something and was being helped off. Um, and there was like all this calamity around him. And you look at, at him, and he's like just bopping to that that rap song he's got going. He's got no idea. What's, all he's there to do is to like bop and hit homers, you know. And I think that the one thing that uh, that helped him is a little bit maybe a shorter swing than some of the uh, bigger guys. Um, and then also, uh, he just needs to understand pacing. I think that if Otani had won, and, and we saw a little bit with Soto, is like they were gassed, dude. Otani was grabbing his knees after that, and that was a little bit of the altitude aspect. Um, whereas Alonso just seems like a, a homer hitting machine. Like, <laughs> just just knew how to kind of keep going. I, I think he hit his uh, his thirty five uh, record. Uh, that he had thirty four in a round. Um, and uh, he did that kind of early on, but he just didn't seem as gassed by it by, as uh, Otani and Soto did. Dave Joust, by the way, the Mets bench coach, was pitching to him this time. Last time, it was actually Pete Alonso's cousin who pitched to him when he won the home run derby. Joust was incredible. Like Everything was 
just exactly right where he wanted to hit it, which is again, it's part of the success in an event like this. You have to be big, I strong. I think Gallo and good might this, have been screwed by his pitcher, man. <laughs> There's something going on with Gallo. I was like, what is going on here? He was like, he was taking pitches, and uh, and the angle, the the angle the balls are coming off the bat was just not right. Yeah, yeah. well, won't get talked about, I guess, uh, as much as. Juan Soto in that three strike round when they went to double overtime and it was like three swings, a three swing off, they called it. Soto took after pitch. This is where his insane plate discipline set him apart, right? He took pitch after pitch from Kevin Long until he was sure he was going to hit it out. And that's exactly what he did. He hit all three of those balls out. And if you think about how remarkable that is, like how hard that is to do, um, you know, it's going to be forgotten in all this mess. And, you know, everyone was rooting for Otani really at that point in time. But for Juan Soto, who's 22 years old still, to, to be able to do that on that kind of a stage, um, to me, just is it, truly remarkable. Yeah, taking taking pitches is not something you normally see at the, at the home run derby. That was pretty I, – I did notice that. If you take one because you're not quite ready, okay, fine. One goes by. You take more than one, something's not going the way that it's supposed to. Like one per round, that is. Uh, question for each of you, which – Derby participant will hit the most homers in the second half of the season. I saw the comments from Juan Soto about thinking that being in the Derby will actually fix his swing. He's hitting the ball on the ground too much, having these uh, rounds and rounds of trying to hit the ball in the air more often might actually help sort of reset his swing in a good way, which is is pretty interesting. I think we've debunked the idea that the home run derby itself actually causes you not to hit as many home runs in the second half, but it's really more of a, a regression thing that Eno has pointed out in the past. It's that you exceeded expectations. That's why you were selected and you're just going to regress back to your projection in the second half. It's not that you were so tired from one day of extra swings that you couldn't hit any more home runs. So of the eight competitors in I'm the broken. home run derby, <laughs> who hits the most homers in the second half? You know, you can go first on this one. Uh, you know, I, the projections say uh, Otani will hit 21, the bad X says. Uh, Gallo will hit 20, and Soto will hit 16. Um, I'm actually maybe going to take Soto. Uh, I think that there might have been a health aspect, and boy, did that shoulder look uh, healthy to me in the home run derby. Um, and I like the fact that he's uh, thinking about trying to get the ball in the air more, uh, and that he's aware of his ground ball rate. Um, and uh, that plus elite plate discipline is always a good place to start. Otani, um, if the Angels fall out of it, uh, what is his workload going to look like? Uh, what are they? Uh, how much are they going to play him? What are they going to do with him? Um, and then Gallo uh, is a prime trade candidate. And when players uh, change teams, uh, they change uh, park uh, situations, but they also uh, often uh, swing too much and press. Uh, to impress their new uh, teams that they're on. So I could see Gallo's plate discipline maybe falling apart a little bit uh, on a new team and maybe that affecting his home run number. I'm going to go with Gallo. I think Otani is the reasons that you mentioned. Um, I don't also don't know if he's going to tire down the stretch. They're not playing for anything really at this point in time already. Um, so I don't really see that. Soto to me is too much of a pure hitter. He's always going to be, especially a guy with two strikes, a guy who's going to hit a line drive or do whatever he has to do to get a base hit. He's almost, he's almost too much of a pure, really good hitter uh, to just be a home run guy. I think Gallo, especially if he gets traded to a team where he's not the guy, right, um, may get an opportunity to hit even more home runs, may join a stacked lineup, may join a contending team. Um, and so I think he actually has the best chance. I've never heard the press to impress 
line. I like that though. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's something I found that uh, your your reach rate, your O swing, goes up uh, with a new team. Um, it's not it's not it's not for every it's not exactly true like every single player does, but it's something that generally happens. It's some, like you remember when Chris Davis was traded to the A's. He like you know when Pat Burrell when Pat Burrell was traded to uh, yeah the K K Chris Crush Davis the K uh, when he was traded to the A's uh, he he had a hard time at first because he was swinging at everything um, I think it came up when Pat Burrell was signed uh, was traded to the Giants uh, uh, when uh, what's his face uh, lefty uh, that uh, lefty Jay Bruce when Jay Bruce was traded to the Mets uh, he swung at everything outside the zone so. It's something that's happened a fair amount in the past. Uh, but, you know, you, I, I like what you're saying, too. Like, he could just learn. Like, he right now, he's the only guy in the lineup, so he gets pitched a certain way, probably. But if he was, like, your sixth hitter or something, like uh, – and also, he could he could just join a, a, a team that has a better park situation. That park is actually uh, suppressing home runs right now. Yeah, that's the big thing, too. Yeah, the park upgrade kind of stands out to me. I'll take Pete Alonso. I think he's going to take the momentum from this second home run derby win. I mean, he's right there near the top of the projections. You know, you mentioned it. he's got 20 the rest of the way, according to Bat X, but oh, nothing yeah. in his world seems as likely to change. Whereas Otani, I could see the usage changing if the Angels do fall out of it by September. They could back off him just a little bit because what he's doing this year is just something we haven't seen anyone do before. And trying to limit the wear and tear if the games become meaningless is probably a priority. For the organization. Let's get to the comments made by Rob Manfred on Tuesday. Uh, Britt, what did you find most interesting among the topics that Manfred addressed with the media? So, Eno and I were walking back from Manfred. We are, because we like each other in real life too, not just on this show. We <laughs> <laughs> can't get enough. You know, we sat next to each other at Derby. Someone yelled out, Rates and Merrill's, where's DVR? By the way. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> So we actually and, like and like almost uh, sprayed us with beer. He was very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so we were talking about this on the way home, and I think probably the most important thing Manfred said, as it pertains to fans, people listening to this show, is the rules. And he feels like the seven inning double headers are going to go away. It was mostly a product of COVID. Of you know they weren't sure when they had to decide in January, February, what the world was going to look like. And I think that is a fair point. You know, you're not you're not sure. And, and everyone would have crushed them for health and safety if the world wasn't where we are today, if we weren't quite as open up as we are now. So he did mention that. He also mentioned the runner on second is something that may also go away. So I think if you're a fan and a lot of people didn't like those rules, um, that's something that um, I kind of took out of that. That was probably the most important thing, certainly, um, you know, out the there. most concrete thing, maybe, you know, that, that yeah. actually happened. Yeah, yeah. he had some words about the A's, which, you know, you're much more well-versed in the stadium situation. He was peppered about that a lot, too. Yeah. Um, but I'll back on the rules thing, uh, a little, there was a small uh, exchange uh, that was kind of uh, illuminating. Um, he called uh, NLDH uh, to Derek Gould. He, he called the NLDH a non-extreme rules change um so that one sounded like, like i really think uh, nldh is gonna happen he just didn't want to comment on it uh happening because uh, it's also a labor question and the nldh is going to be some sort of part of the carrot that the ownership will give them in terms of here are more jobs um, and there's always been debate about how much of a carrot that is. And so I think Manfred didn't want to get into that aspect, 
But just calling it a non-extreme change to the game suggests to me that he thinks that this is something they could change easily. Yeah, I think so it's a, a baby think, carrot. Uh, yeah, a baby carrot. <laughs> <laughs> a baby carrot, which are, are superior carrots anyway. So yeah, they, they, they don't taste that. They taste different. Like they they still taste like carrots, but they they're consistent. But sometimes there's, like, a number, there's a number one thing that gets returned in my kids' lunchboxes. <laughs> it's because they can't trade them for anything else. You can't take yeah. baby carrots into the cafeteria and it's come away with a pudding cup or a cookie. That's not going to yeah. happen. No chance. The Oakland Stadium stuff, um, you know, uh, he kept reiterating this line that, that John Fisher is prepared to invest a billion dollars in the stadium. Um, which is true, and I don't know if it's 100% tr- true as well because um, a lot of that is tied up in these deals where the, t- where the, the city pays him back uh, through sort of non through, through tax uh, vehicles. So uh, I don't know if I agreed with that 100%, but he basically said that these uh, July votes that are happening in Oakland will determine the future of baseball in Oakland, and if those votes don't go well, um, I think it, he said basically they pick up the pace, uh, quote unquote, on looking at Vegas, Portland, and other places as as options. So uh, I think there's a July twentieth vote um, that uh, the Oakland has gone all in on, and they're just they're hoping to to get their way in that vote. If they don't, uh, then uh, relocation becomes the primary sort of uh, idea for the Oakland A's. You know, for uh, for that franchise, it's just it's very difficult to imagine them playing somewhere else. Like I, I really hope they find a way to stay in Oakland. Yeah, I, I do as well. And you know, um, I've looked at the particulars of that agreement, and um, there's like a sort of a five hundred million dollar um, agreement between the city and and the A's that I'm, I'm totally one hundred percent behind. I, I think the, the city does bear some responsibility for cleaning up the site making it sellable right now it's not even sellable it's like trying to sell like a you know the thing that doesn't have any it doesn't have any like water running to it it doesn't have streets you know what i mean like you kind of it's it's you have to bring it up to a certain standard to make it sellable i think uh but there's another 300 million that i think is well worth debating uh but hopefully these votes get to a point where they're like okay we we pass on the general idea and now we can haggle about these uh, about the the individual members involved in this. And I think Oakland, I think Oakland could really benefit from this. If you think about the gas lamp in San Diego and Petco, that one was done really well because the gas lamp existed. But what they did was they put Petco close to the gas lamp and they extended the gas lamp. The gas lamp is now three or four times bigger than it was before Petco Park was put there because it extends the entirety of downtown. Um, And Barrio, uh, Barrio Logan, the next thing over was like a really terrible like community and i know gentrification has it's like terrible you know it's it's evils too but barrio logan is now a vibrant community with lots of little businesses that are locally owned and there's a lot of energy there and it's completely different neighborhoods so what i see in oakland is jack london square exists howard terminal is close to it and a ballpark there could just stretch all of that Jack London Square situation into a vibrant sort of front waterfront Oakland community could change the the uh, the 
what Oakland sees, seems like to people could change, put Oakland on the map as more of a destination city for people. And um, I think it's uh, I think it could be, be really amazing for the city. So I'm generally pro uh, this agreement. And uh, and I hope that the votes go well for them in July, I guess. Yeah. And then he did mention one more thing. Manfred said that, you know, with Tampa Bay, they can't break that lease. So they're still exploring the possibility of splitting the season between Tampa and Montreal. Um, you know, they're stuck at Tropicana Field for at least a few more years. So that's further down the road. Um, he did say Oakland the next few months is really going to largely determine their fate. And those were great points, you know, and I can't help but think of Nationals Park, which the Navy Yard was an absolute um, nothing there. There was, you know, it was the kind of place where you, you locked your car and you did not walk at night back to that car. Um, and really now high rises and whole foods everywhere. Yeah. You know, the whole area and they had the all-star game there two years ago has been so built up. It is like this very hot neighborhood. Um, and I think it's probably the best example because even in San Diego, people were still going to gas lamp. Nats right. park literally was built in a area where there was absolutely nothing. And because of the ballpark, that whole area has sprung up now. And now it is a very expensive, very desirable place to live. Yeah, I think as you guys both said, the next couple of weeks are a big couple of weeks for the future of baseball in Oakland. And uh, the comment that I saw on my timeline was that Las Vegas isn't a bluff as far as uh, a possible destination for the A's. And it does seem like they're closer than ever to possibly relocating that team, even if it's not more likely than not that they go at this point. So. <laughs> yeah, please, please, please keep the A's in Oakland. All right, let's get to some second half predictions. A quick check-in on where things stand in each division. We begin in the AL East, where the Red Sox are a game and a half up on the Rays. Come on, Red Sox, call up Jaron Duran, you cowards. The uh, Yankees and Jays are both eight games back of Boston right now. And surprisingly, I was digging into this earlier today, the Jays have a better run differential than the Red Sox. They're plus 72. The Red Sox are plus 57. I didn't expect to see that given the gap between those two teams in the standings. My question for you, Britt, I'll throw this to you first. Does it stay Red Sox versus Rays through the stretch run? Or do you see one of the Jays or Yankees possibly getting into the mix for the division? I think the Jays... Um, are kind of a team to watch here on the rise. They got, especially, you know, they played a good chunk of the season without Springer, who was one of their big acquisitions. I think, you know, in talking to guys yesterday, people keep mentioning the Jays as like a team to look out for, a team full of young guys who aren't going to, you know, necessarily tire down the stretch, who aren't going to say, hey, we shouldn't be there. They're not really feeling the pressure. Um, I think I like them better than the Yankees. I just don't find the Yankees – um, they're just not a super watchable team to me. I know people are going to, to maybe hate on that, but selfishly, I can make a reason to watch every, almost every other team in the American League East, and that includes the Orioles. Um, I think there are watchable players, uh, but to me, with the Yankees, if it's a non-coal start, I'm just almost not interested in watching, um, and I'm wondering what move the Yankees are going to do that's going to make them better defensively or faster on the base paths or more athletic. Um, you know, they may add a bat. They may certainly need a lefty bat. Um, they may do something with their outfield situation. But I, I don't really see the Yankees being this team that all of a sudden storms up to the top of the American League East. And with the Red Sox, I think they've had such a good head start. Um, I don't really see them collapsing. You know, we knew their lineup was good. What nobody knew, including myself, who hated on Derek, uh, was that their pitching was going to follow suit. And in talking to guys that are here on the Red Sox, they mentioned like they kind of relish that from spring training. And their big thing was 
They were going to attack guys. They were going to go after guys. And they've been able to really do that. And I think the fact that there are Boston Red Sox pitchers here in the All-Star game should tell you that it's been a massive success. So I see Toronto vying for one of those two spots. I think if they overtake anyone, it's going to be Tampa Bay. I don't see the Red Sox totally sliding out of playoff contention. And I just don't see the Yankees being a team that ascends to the top of the American League East. They're just not built... To me, if you're a Yankees team, they're built to either win the World Series or not. That's success in their book. Now, what moves would make this Yankees team a World Series winner? I don't really see those moves out there, especially when we fiddle around with the luxury tax and all those things that now the Yankees are concerned about, that the Yankees of the 1990s, just it was never a factor. And ran. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I could tell Marte. I mean, uh, he's there's a guy who's got speed, uh, defense, uh, contact rate. Um, could could uh, could solve some of their uh, some of their problems. I mean, one player probably doesn't do it. I think you're right. I think there's a bigger maybe a bit of a bigger problem there. That, uh, but Marte is I think just an interesting one. I don't know if the Diamondbacks will give him up. I don't know if the if the Yankees, especially this season. I uh, think it's a great time to push more chips in. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe they'll just uh, take a pass and see what, what see what happens with this year. Especially since they do seem to be finagling around with that uh, salary cap, you know, situation, not wanting to go over. So uh, I see it as like, yeah, I see Rays and Red Sox battling for the division, and Blue Jays and Yankees battling for the second wild card. I I kind of still see both wild cards coming out of uh, this division interesting we'll get to the AL West in a few minutes maybe we can explain why the A's are destined to fall back to the pack because they got a pretty good hold on one of those wild cards right now but plenty should change around here I do think with the Yankees and Kettle Marte specifically I think it's really difficult for a team like Arizona to trade him at the deadline he's on a fantastic contract very team-friendly deal I think just about any team in the league would be interested if he's available so they'd have even more suitors if they make a trade like that during the winter. Uh, Starling Marte, though, could be an easy fit for them. Even though the Marlins want to keep him, they could just sign him again as a free agent in the offseason, get a couple prospects back from the Yankees now, to get the player they want back in the offseason if they like him as a, a leader in their clubhouse. But I'll take the Rays to win the division. I think the Rays will pass the Red Sox. Even though the Red Sox are getting Chris Sale back in the second half, I still think bullpen depth could be an issue. Their A bullpen is good. They'll shore it up. Uh, but really, the starting pitching depth is also a concern for me. They're going to score plenty of runs. They're a legitimate good playoff team. But I think with the Rays, they've got something up their sleeve. They've been very good to this point, even without making moves. Wander could keep getting better in the second half. More importantly, they still have plenty of prospects to go out there and make multiple trades that will make this team better for the second half and make this team better for 2022. So I will take the Rays to win the division, even though the projections at this point now have the Red Sox taking first and the Yankees clearly in third, which I think a month ago, projections still pushed the Yankees to the top of this division. So uh, the worm has turned, as Brian Anderson often says on the Brewers broadcast. I've never heard that expression outside of the Brewers broadcast. Is that really a thing? The worm has turned? Sounds like something I'd get wrong. That's what I thought. I was like, that's an enoism. <laughs> so weird. Also, or do worms turn a lot? Like, but that's the thing. I think they, they very occasionally do. It's like a cow. Cows actually lay down sometimes. 
not often, right? You drive by a field and there's cows in it. They're just standing there grazing, but they have to lay down at some point. So if you see a cow in transition, it's supposed to be good luck. Maybe it's the same if you see a worm turn, that's actually good luck because it's a rare occurrence. We're not unpacking the cow stuff. We're, we're moving on. We're going to scurry well, over. Wikipedia says it comes from, it's an expression used to convey the message that even the meekest or most docile of creatures will retaliate or seek revenge if pushed too far. Even a worm will turn. Um, so that's not exactly what I expected. <laughs> and, okay, we'll, we'll we'll cow talk on a future show because um, I guess Derek is a cow expert out there. In uh, <laughs> out of out of the three of us, I think I have to be considered the resident cow expert. So glad I can provide something to this show. Uh, let's go to the AL Central, where the White Sox have an eight-game lead on Cleveland and Eloy Jimenez nearing a return. He is progressing in his rehab assignment. I, I think the White Sox are going to win the division. If you have a take to the contrary, this is a good time to share it. But the bigger question in the AL Central is Cleveland is four and a half back of the second wild card. Can they, if they get healthy in that rotation, and if they do what they usually do at the deadline, continue to kind of play the middle can they actually find a way to be in the thick of things with those other AL East teams and with the A's to capture a second wild card? Are they still a playoff caliber team, even without Lindor and in their current position? Britt, we'll start with you on this one. Cleveland, in or out on the playoffs? Out. Um, I'm going to be pretty succinct. I don't think it's, like we said, the White Sox are going to run away with it. I think that's very clear. The Central's a little boring. Um, it's really unfortunate that the Twins have gone to the land of no return because it would be fun to kind of see that team maybe play like we all thought for a few months and make a run at something. But obviously that's not going to happen. They're too far gone. I don't think this Cleveland team, um, which I think you can say was very docile or, or went, you know, kind of went very quietly into the break is just that I just don't see them. I think the wild card would come out of the AL East, maybe two as you know, it said out of the AL East, but you know, certainly I think the second one was probably be the AL West. I don't think the AL Central is going to get more than a division winner in this. I mean, there's one thing to be said for the uh, softness of the bottom of that division and how uh, certain times schedules in the, in, the, in the second half kind of start to favor a team in a bad division, right? Like uh, the Indians may get a lot of uh, cracks at the Royals and Tigers in the second half because the schedules usually try to kind of make you finish within your division. So I, like, I guess there's something that could, that could uh, break their way in that way. But I just, I'm not, I'm not that um, excited by even this offense that they've cobbled together, you know, like finding Harold Ramirez is, um, is not that exciting. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, okay, you guys got someone who is like a slightly below average major leaguer. That's a little bit better than you've been doing in the past, but it's, it's not that exciting. Um, and the, the way that they've been calling together that lineup is just not not uh, does not inspire confidence in them in the second half. The uh, as much as I think there might be some regression in the White Sox pitching staff, uh, that's been part of what's kept them together with all these injuries. It doesn't matter because they're going to have so many bats coming back that I think that they can push through any sort of regression. And in fact, Giolito may regress positively. I mean, I think he can be he can be better going forward. Right. What you lose from Dylan Cease in the second half, you might gain back from Giolito being more like himself. Uh, let's move over to the AL West. It sounds like you guys might have some takes on the A's, maybe not holding on to that second wild card. They currently have that if the season were to end today. The Astros are up three and a half on Oakland right now atop the division. 
maybe the biggest surprise in the AL that we haven't really talked that much about on the show. The Mariners are five over 500 at the break. They're 48 and 43. If I'd asked you guys, hey, what's the Mariners record? You probably would have said something under 500 if you hadn't looked at the standings in a while. So they probably deserve a little more love than they're getting. The Angels won over 500 at 45 and 44. They'll get Trout back. Maybe they'll have a healthy Anthony Rendon. But to me, it still seems like a stretch. They're going to do more than push for the wild card. They're five and a half back of the wild card. They're very Cleveland-esque right now in their position. Can you craft a narrative that makes the Angels come through on what are currently 14.6% odds to make the playoffs? What do you think, Eno? Everyone froze for me. Sorry, was it me? Every time I throw it to Eno, he freezes. Everyone froze. Is it me? Yeah, it's the magic of hotel internet. Yeah, what, what do you think about the Angels, Eno? Yay, hotel internet! Um, <laughs> I think uh, the the Mariners aren't going to do it. I mean, they have a, a, a minus 30 run differential. Even in, the Indians have a, a better run differential. In fact, just the, another way of putting it is the Mariners are projected to score as many runs as they've scored and give up as many runs as they've given up and be five games under 500 going forward. So um, I, uh, the only thing that I could see is they call up Kelnish, they call up um, they call up Kalnick, they call up Julio Rodriguez, they call up George Kirby, um, and they try to just ride the wave and improve their projections that way uh, by calling up young talent. I'm not sure they're going to do that. The Julio Rodriguez story seems to be set uh, for more of a September or early 2022 debut. Yeah, it would actually change a lot of the the narrative from you know, things we were talking about with the Mariners back in the spring, if they went really aggressive and brought up more prospects. Logan Gilbert's been really good lately, too. After a bumpy start, he's settled down. I think he's got the whip under one, the ERA, and the, the mid-threes. Looks every bit as good as we'd hoped he would be, uh, which is a nice turnaround for him because I thought those growing pains might last a little while. What do you think about the AL West, Britt? Is it the Astros division, and are the A's actually a playoff-caliber team when the dust clears? I mean, I think it's most... Probably one of the more interesting division races. I mean, we talked about the Central's basically over already. I think the mistake everyone makes every year is writing off the A's or thinking like, hey, the A's aren't that good. And then all of a sudden the A's are in the playoffs again. And, oh, you look up, they've won 90 games. Um, So I'm not going to say that it's over. I think that the A's can make a run. But I think the Astros are a really good team that, um, you know, is not here represented at the All-Star Game, which has been a little bit of a storyline. Um, you know, Tony Clark also spoke today to us about mental health of players and their well-being. And um, certainly, I guess the Astros probably didn't want to get booed by fans here for a week. Might have factored in as well. Uh, but back to the AL West, I so badly want a scenario where the Angels make the playoffs. I want to see Mike Trout and I want to see Otani and I want to, you know, I want to watch Anthony Rendon again and I want to watch that lineup. But God, that pitching staff. I mean, it's just year after year. Cannot fix it. Doesn't matter what they do. Um, I don't see a scenario where they beat the odds and rally because I think if there's one constant in this game, it's that if you can't pitch, you can't get very far. So unfortunately, I don't see the Angels doing anything. And I feel like we should all get together and maybe like pick it somewhere and be like, how dare you waste Otani and Trout one more year this winter? And just basically demand that they do whatever is possible to add some pitching, to develop pitching. Um, I think Maniasen is going to probably get more of his people in place over the next winter, but it's it's just upsetting. I mean, you watched, you know, and I got to see Otani and see the reaction that crowds had and to know that this guy and Mike Trout are again not going to be on baseball's biggest stage 
the point in time where many fans, it's the only time they watch, right? When it's on national TV. And I think that the league and the Angels as a whole just need to do something to make this team better, get them in the playoffs. Like, why? Why does this have to happen all the time? Like, just once or twice. Like, I'm not asking for Kraut to win the World Series, but I think we'd all just love to cover some playoff games with the best players in baseball. Is that too much to ask? It would be like LeBron James every year sitting out or like Sidney Crosby at the NHL, like just like ne never making it to their marquee events. Like it is unthinkable in other sports. Yeah, it, it's pretty wild. I, I think the other thing I would throw out there though, is that the two things that have gone way wrong for the Angels in their rotation, Dylan Bundy and Griffin Canning, like no matter what you thought of both of those guys coming into the year, there's no chance that you expect them to be this bad or this ineffective. If they get even one of those guys back on track, that's a step in the right direction. Alex Cobb's been solid. A 4-2 ERA is acceptable. Maybe he's a little better in the second half. Otani's been good. Andrew Heaney should be better. Patrick Sandoval's been a nice surprise so far. Kind of curious to see where it goes. And I think their bullpen's a tick better than I expected it to be. You know, Rysel Iglesias has turned things around after a slow start. Steve Ciszek's an okay veteran there. Uh, Mike Myers is a good option there that hasn't pitched that well yet, but I think he could be a good late inning guy. So they're not hopeless. Like, I think the odds are fair in this case. Just under 15% chance of making the playoffs sounds about right. And if they get that, that boost from Trout, if he comes back and he is himself, and they get Rendon on the field for most of the second half, that's two really good players to add to that lineup each and every day. Maybe they're that type of team that can out-hit their pitching and at least close the gap. Obviously, the division seems like it's out of reach, but I would not be shocked if they were a surprising riser in the second half. I think there's enough good there. They need to add to it, but I think there's enough good there to actually still have just a little bit of hope if you're an Angels fan. Yeah, here's a name that should give you some hope. Reed Detmers uh, was amazing in the, uh, in the Futures game. Max Bay uh, did some stuff uh, plus modeling off of just the one game. And uh, obviously, there's some small samples. They're amped up. This is going to be – these numbers are off the charts. So, you know, there's some, like, numbers, stuff plus numbers that I don't see for major leaguers. So, um, I would say that just the relative ranking is interesting. And Reed Detmers had, in this, in this game, had a top three four-seamer, a top three slider, and a top three curveball. Uh, and that's among the Futures Games guys. So him and Shane Baz really stood out, stood out at the Futures Game from a Stuff Plus perspective. He's in double A, and they need him. But uh, to Britt's sort of comments, Detmers kind of took a real step forward outside of the organization. He added two ticks in the offseason. You know, he added a, a knuckle slider grip in the offseason. So I think the real place to poke on the Angels is – do something about player development, man. You guys, the Angels didn't pay a single coach or or player development executive through the through the lockdowns, um, and it's kind of coming back to bite them, I think. So if they they need to really uh, focus on player development over there. And as to the players not coming to the All Star game, there was actually um, it was hard because Manfred didn't want to say anything about labor stuff. So all the labor stuff was really um, banal, just boring, sort of just like. Uh, dancing around, oh, we're going to respond to whatever they bring up. It's a negotiation, blah, 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 blah. But there was an interesting kind of thing when, where they asked, uh, when you asked the MOBPA about it, uh, Tony Clark says, uh, oh, well, you have to think about the mental health. It's a long season. They can have their reasons. 
Um, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't go poking you know holes into everybody. Like you know, because somebody was like, Jose Altuve was healthy. What is this? And he's like, you know, no, no, everything about Jose Altuve's situation. Blah blah blah. When they asked Fred, Manfred said, "It's in the CBA. It's a collectively bargained thing that attending the All Star Game is mandatory because we want our best stars here." And so after he he suggested, and I. I I wish I had the wording right in front of me, so I don't want to get it wrong. But what I'm I'm paraphrasing him now, suggesting that he will go through the list of people that decided not to come and decide if those their decisions fit the umbrella that the of the exceptions. That's what he's talking about. The exceptions to that rule where it's mandatory except if you in certain situations. So it sounds like he may actually like it's potentially this is now me talking it's potentially could fire uh, find someone if he goes through this list and says well Altuve you're not hurt and it says in here you know you have to be you're not even claiming you're hurt you know uh it doesn't really fit the exceptions that we've created so I'm gonna find you for not going to the all-star game so uh, I think that it's, it's a little story it's a bigger deal to some and not as big a deal to some. It may feel like inside baseball to some, but I could think I could see this not being the end of the story. Yeah. It seems like something that will come up during the upcoming CBA negotiations. Um, I will take the Astros to hold on to their division lead and I'll take the A's to finish ahead of the angels, but I think the angels close the gap and at least make it interesting. I'm torn on whether or not they get a wild card from this division. It's easy to say they will based on the standings right now. Uh, but I'm kind of leaning against it. I don't know if the A's will make enough impact moves to hold their position, whereas I think those AL East teams might be a little more aggressive at the deadline, and that might enable them to close that gap on Oakland. Plus, I think with the West being a little tougher than we thought, it's not as much of a cakewalk for the teams trying to get to that wild card as it might have been in years past. On the big, the big prizes of the trade deadline are probably Trevor Story and John Gray. Um, and... You know, you could see one of them going to the A's, but the A's may need both of them. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not sure that they're going to pay to get both of them. And then I think there's going to be a decent amount of competition for John Gray because, hey, Cleveland could use him. Uh, the Blue Jays uh, could certainly use a starting pitcher. Uh, maybe even the Yankees. I think there might be a decent amount of buyers when it comes to the few legitimate starting pitchers. Like what, what other starting pitchers are out there? To, to help a team like the A's and the Blue Jays, you know? Um, it's a short list. It's more starters that you'd expect to see in some other team's bullpen as opposed to guys that are going to come in right away and be part of a, a playoff caliber rotation uh, going forward. But let's go to the NL East. Let's talk about the Mets. They have a three-and-a-half game lead on the Phillies. They're up four on Atlanta. Atlanta just lost Ronald Acuna for the rest of the season, so that might be uh, the final straw for that team for this year because you can't you can't talk yourself into making a lot of trades for this season given the loss that they just endured over the weekend. Might make the sitting there they might it might like Charlie Morton could be one of those starters who's on the move. Maybe he becomes the best starting pitcher available at the trade deadline and they get a prospect or two back. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? He's, he's comfortable there. They need an, I mean, yeah. it, it kind of writes itself. Okay, so we're looking at the Phillies, a flawed team, as we've talked about many times on this show, a team that would have to make moves and not only shore up the bullpen, but probably get a little more depth if they're going to chase down the Mets. The Mets have dealt with a lot of injuries. They've had an underperforming Lindor for the first half. Their arrow seems like it's still pointed up in general. They still seem like they are in control of the division. 
are the Nats actually the biggest threat, even at five games below 500, to put together a big half and put some pressure on this Mets team? They're probably the biggest threat, yeah. I would say so. I mean, the, the weird. Phillies are, are in the middle of a, a COVID situation that's, that's yeah. kind of not great. Uh, I don't, I don't, when I, when I look at the Phillies, I'm like, oh, they need the pitching to improve, but I don't have a guy to point at. I think Nola can be better. I guess Nola could put together kind of like an ace-like stretch. He's, he is an ace. But their bullpen is so bad, you know, like, I don't, it's not, you know, it's not that is kind of like, meh, we go to the next division, like, the Mets are probably going to win it, but they're not necessarily a. I, I could see Soto, you know, having an MVP like second half. Like I could see Soto kind of going on a burner, um, but the pitching staff now, in in and it's very weird to say that about Washington, but the pitching staff now does not uh, leave me super excited. You know, Max is there still, but it's kind of Max and who you know right now. The only thing where I would change my mind is if you're telling me that Steven Strasburg is coming back soon and he's going to be the 2019 Steven Strasburg, right? I think right. we can all agree on this show. If he comes back, he's in his like World Series MVP 2019 zone, then yeah, I'm scared of the Nats. I think everyone all of a sudden is scared of the Nats. But until that happens and there's no indication, there's no timeline on his injury that that's going to happen soon, um, they just don't have enough pieces. You're right. Yeah, it feels like a good lineup missing some pitching pieces, and there's too many teams like that. So they're not gonna they're not gonna acquire like we're speaking about John Gray and, and Charlie Morton. They're not gonna they're not gonna spend it before that. Not in their situation. Right, and I think that's where some of my confidence in the Mets comes from. It's rare to have confidence in the Mets at the midway point or at the All Star break, but I, I think it's pretty clear they intend to continue adding and adding and adding some more. I think they're gonna act more like those AL East teams in this division that should give them some more separation. Uh, I'm not burying the Phillies. I just I look at them and I just think it seems like they need more things to go right to hold that spot. They've had a few things go wrong. Harper's been dinged up, uh, especially, but I just don't see it happening with this team. Uh, let's get to the NL Central, which I think has become a bit more interesting with the Reds going eight and two in their last ten before the break. The Brewers have a four game lead over Cincinnati, and they start with a home series in Cincinnati to begin the second half. So that could be a really pivotal series to possibly pick up a few more games. They took three of four from the Brewers at American Family Field going into the break. I think it's really a two-team race unless we get a red-hot stretch from the Cubs or Cardinals in the near future. Both of those teams have playoff odds under 5%, according to fan graphs. It is strange for me as a fan of a team that division to see both of those teams buried like that with a little less than a half season to play. Uh, you know, what do you think about the Reds at this point? Are they a legitimate playoff threat? You know, I think the difference between the Reds and the Cardinals is um, how they treated their pitching over the COVID situation. Um, because the Reds um, really stayed in touch with their pitchers and and really kept them healthier. I mean, if you just look at what's happening to St. Louis pitchers up and down that organization, there's just a ton of injuries. Instead, the Reds are producing guys like Santian and Vladimir Gutierrez, who are not amazing pitchers, but they're healthy, one, and they're coming up and they're able to pitch six innings in their debuts, you know? So, like, they, they have had their sights on this. They're filling in all the injuries with, comp, comp, you, know, com, you know, just competitive pitchers, um, and they're going to stick in it. I just think that the wild card is not coming out of the division. So it's going to be all about the Reds attacking the Brewers, the Reds doing well in that division, I could see the Cardinals putting a run together with Flaherty coming back at some point and getting back in it. But this is the one-team division, 
and uh, the Brewers just seem too good for me. I think they also put in some bats into some positions now where you're like, okay, we've got a bunch of bats that are, haven't performed this day. If any of these guys get it together, we're going to be even better going forward. You know, like if Rowdy can start hitting, if Christian can start hitting, you know, there's a lot of guys that, you know, if they do start hitting, we'll, this team will get even better. Yeah, I agree. You know, and then people forget, too, that no team is as good in the final month of the season, it seems, as the Milwaukee Brewers. Like, several times now, they haven't really been around. Like, they've been kind of hanging around, and they've made themselves a playoff team. Well, now they're out in front, you know, even though, you know, by no means is it a safe margin. But I think they still have room to improve. I think they're going to be probably the division winner. What is crazy, like you said, Derek, to me, what's crazy is the Cubs. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen such a steep, like, the team is overperforming to, oh, wait, no, we're sellers. You know, like they lost how many was it in a row? Um, 14, 57, something like that. It was just crazy. Um, it's hard to be that bad uh, in baseball for that consistent of a stretch. So I think once the Cubs kind of bottomed out, you're kind of looking at, you know, the Cardinals as a far away team. And you're saying, well, are the Brewers better than the Reds? And I think the answer to that is yes. So I think they're going to hang on. And I agree. I think this is a one and done type of division. No question about it. One little asterisk is that Joey Votto has the best barrel rate of his career, dude. If Joey Votto has like an intense second half, they would have like three uh, really locked and loaded bats in the middle of that lineup. I don't know. It's uh, Stranger things have happened. You know, you can't go for both sides. (laughs) I know, I know. Brewers win. Brewers. Brewers got it. (laughs) Thanks for humoring me. I I think the Reds are interesting though especially if they kind of recapture some of the energy they had going into last season like the fourth quarter of 2019 leading into that offseason they went out and they got Mike Moustakis they were an aggressive team trying to make some adjustments and push chips in if they do that at the deadline that could help them close the gap but I think they have to come out with a floor they have to be good they have to be really good in the second half the early part of the second half to convince ownership hey, you should spend that money again. We're actually a good enough team to win this division and go to the postseason this year. Let's close it out with the NL West, where three playoff teams could reside this year. Giants currently two up on the Dodgers and six up on the Padres. All three lined up to make the playoffs right now. Simple question, Britt. Does it hold? Yeah, all three make... Does the current standings hold or do all three teams go to the playoffs hold? Do they all make the playoffs? Yes. And I think we could talk for an hour just about this division because it's the most fun, most fascinating, um, probably even most star-studded division in baseball. Um, I think no one saw the Giants coming, but I think we've agreed on this podcast. They're not going away. They're not fading. Um, And we don't think the Padres and Dodgers, like you put them in any other division, and they may have run away with it already. So I think all three teams go. I think it would be a shame if it didn't hold. I want to see all three teams in the postseason. I want to see these teams have really exciting September games to try to win the division because I don't think any of these teams are out of the division title just yet either. And you know there's a huge difference for teams between playing that one-game one wild card where literally anything can happen, a ball can go through someone's legs and your season is over, or playing an actual series and winning the division and getting to play the lower seed and getting the benefit of a series. So you're going to see some really, really – exciting, meaningful playoff games out of the NL West down the stretch. And I couldn't be more excited to watch them. Uh, my only gripe, of course, is being on Eastern time. Uh, it often it often wreaks havoc on the sleep schedule. But all three teams, I feel like it'd be a massive upset if one of those teams didn't make it in. 
shout out to the currents of life bringing me to the West Coast for this postseason. That's going to be a, a blessing if there ever has been one with uh, the time change there. You know, the projections have the Dodgers still getting to 98 wins. It's about six more than both the Padres and the Giants. So just based on on that, they're still sort of clear favorites to win the division. Do you buy that or do you think it's actually going to be a lot closer atop the West at the end of the season? Um, there's something weird in this schedule. So um, the Giants um, and Dodgers have a harder end of season schedule than the Padres. Um, and I think that might matter a little bit. Um, I don't know why that would be. You would expect their schedules to be pretty similar um, because you end with the division rivals. But um, I do. So I do think that changes in my mind, given that the Dodgers lost uh, so much in the sticky stuff uh, scandal um, and are having some injury concerns and have lost uh, two big uh, pitchers. Um, I, and then the strength of schedule bit, I'm going to give the division to the Padres, uh, wild card one to the Giants and wild card two uh, to the Dodgers. Um, this is sort of how I see it shaking up. Uh, they the wild card in that scenario uh, is that uh, the Dodgers are, are, you know, do aggressively pursue upgrades. So it is interesting to kind of hang John Gray over these three teams and just be like, which one of you wants John Gray? <laughs> you know? uh, which one of them needs it the most? Maybe the, maybe the Dodgers. Weird to think that, but yeah, it's among the surprising developments that have happened this season. The Dodgers suddenly don't have enough starting pitching. Right, but I, but if you put John Gray in and Kershaw comes back, then that's then you can get that uh, you can get that rotation to formidable pretty quickly again. So you know what what they do, they might um, be the most interesting team to watch at the deadline uh, because they have the ability to uh, they they have a good team. But they're also kind of embroiled and stuff, and they and they just won. So do they rest on their laurels a little bit, you know? And then the Padres, man, this is going to be the divisional watch for for trades because Farhan has been normally been like pretty like you know selling, you know, he's kind of more on the selling front and little little acquisitions. And I'm not going to go do take a big swing, but could he be tempted in this year? And then you know, AJ Preller is like the Mr. Big Swing guy, you know, like, you know, you know, he's looking out there for like the biggest deal he can make. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to see uh, the trade deadline through this perspective of these three teams as well. I'm going to go Padres to win the division as the, the big turnaround here, but all three teams making the playoffs. I'll say the Dodgers do finish ahead of the giants, but it's going to be back and forth and it's going to be an amazing wild card game between those two teams, who wins this division for you, Britt? I think the Padres, which is unsettling as all three of us are picking them. I think as we mentioned, the Dodgers losing Trevor Bauer for an unforeseen amount of time. They have starting pitching issues. Um, I did not know about the scheduling thing, you know, but that makes me lean towards the Padres even more. Um, I'm just going to go Padres. I want them to win. I think it would be good for baseball um, to have the Padres win the division. I think that's probably the most exciting team certainly the most watchable um, team in baseball. Like I love watching that team play. They have so much fun. They're a group that seems to really enjoy each other. And so I want them to win the division because I want to watch them in the playoffs. And like I said, anything can happen in a wild card game. I'm really pulling for the Padres and AJ Preller, I'm sure is going to make a move or two to put them over the edge. I think that they do end up kind of turning the tables here a little bit and winning the division. 
Yeah, I think as long as that Darvish injury that popped up before the break is nothing serious, you have Darvish, you have Musgrove, you probably get more mileage out of Blake Snell in the second half of the season than you did in the first. We talked about Paddock on yesterday's show. I think he's at least better in the second half, even if he's not the 2019 Paddock again. Maybe he pitches to a four ERA. That's a really nice top four. And I agree with you guys. I mean, AJ Preller is going to keep making moves. He's he's already pot committed for this season and next. He's going to keep doing what he has to do to get upgrades. And he's well positioned to continue dealing from that farm system to make those upgrades happen. So definitely the division race that I think I'm most excited about because it could go down to the absolute last day of the season. Not that others can't, but that one looks most likely to really have every single game matter from here on out. Uh, If you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, this is a good time to get one. Get all the coverage for the rest of the season. Just $3.99 a month to start at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You can reach us on Twitter. She's at Brit underscore Giroli. He's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. You can email us, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. As I mentioned yesterday, strange schedule this week. We are off until Friday. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We'll talk to you again at the end of the week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.